This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Thank you, Kevin, for that very warm introduction. And it's really a privilege to be here. Bishop Nestout, it's a, it's a privilege to be with you in your cathedral and to be able to be with the St. Thomas More Society. What makes a lawyer good? What makes a good lawyer? Maybe we should start with the question, what is a lawyer? There are perhaps many answers to this question. St. Thomas More's sardonic description from his work Utopia was a sort of people whose profession it is to disguise matters. More, of course, being a lawyer himself, perhaps knew what he was talking about. But if we would try to answer more seriously, we could say, a lawyer is a faithful servant of a client, or perhaps a skilled negotiator, or an eloquent advocate, sometimes a wealthy power broker. Now, these are all reasons that perhaps one might want to be a lawyer. But are these answers sufficient? So if you are a lawyer seated here in this cathedral or watching from home, when you reach the end of your life, will you be proud to say, I was a power broker. I was wealthy. I worked for an important firm. This is the meaning of my life. Or are you, in fact, made for something more? Should a lawyer be something more? We can take a cue from what the law asks of a lawyer. When you're admitted to the bar, the law requires you to take an oath. That's because you're entering into an office. You're becoming a servant of public justice. And an oath is a serious business. We could go back to St. Thomas More, who was ready to die rather than take an oath that he could not, in truth, affirm. To quote Robert Bolt's version of Thomas More, these are not words ever said by St. Thomas himself, but dramatized in A Man for All Seasons, what is an oath, then, but words we say to God? When a man takes an oath, he's holding his own self in his own hands, like water. And if he opens his fingers, then he needn't hope to find himself again. The real St. Thomas More, of course, knew that by taking an oath, you're swearing before God. You're swearing in fact, in a certain way, on your immortal soul. And the Catholic tradition takes oaths with a deadly seriousness. Your eternal salvation is involved in an oath. So what is the oath in the state of Virginia, or I should say the Commonwealth of Virginia? This is it. I do solemnly swear or affirm that I will support the Constitution of the United States and the Constitution of the Commonwealth of Virginia, and that I will faithfully, honestly, professionally, and courteously demean myself in the practice of law 
and execute my office of attorney at law to the best of my ability, so help me God. So you swear, I imagine many of you here have sworn, that you will be faithful and honest in the practice of law. Why? Why do you need to be faithful and honest? Because you are a servant of justice. Being a lawyer has to do with justice and serving that very important dimension of the common good. When I first came home from my first year in law school, my parents and friends began posing questions to me. I was the first person in my family to ever have gone to law school. And they started posing deep questions about the law, questions that were really about justice. They didn't realize that at that point, all I knew were the rules of civil procedure. Perhaps you can understand where I'm coming from, because when you show up for your first year at law school, you don't have a course that explains to you what is justice. You start with things like the rules of civil procedure. But the intuition of my family was right. A lawyer should know something about justice. A lawyer should in some way be serving justice and should even be able to say something about what justice is. Scripture has a lot to say about law, about judges, and about justice. And it shows us what an important and noble role lawyers and judges have. Well, I started with kind of demeaning remark about lawyers from St. Thomas More, but actually if we were to read the Bible, we would discover that lawyers are very important servants, officers of justice. The Old Testament tells us that serving as a judge in Israel was to stand over God's people. Exercising judgment in the service of justice on behalf of God himself. So the lawyer in this sense, or the judge, is sharing in God's own authority, his own governance. The book of Exodus speaks of Moses' role this way. Quote, you shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall teach them the statutes and the decisions and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. The classical Christian tradition, its view of law, approaches law very much along these lines. Law is not just an arbitrary command of a superior authority that demands obedience and punishes violations. The law is a teacher about how to live. It protects what is good. It is a guide for life. Now, this is true above all about God's law. But also, it's true about just human laws. When they're formulated by those with care of the community, they should aim at protecting and promoting a flourishing community, a flourishing city, a flourishing nation. 
Now, if we were to fast forward to the New Testament, we would hear St. Paul in his letter to the Romans telling the early Christians to obey even the secular authorities of the Roman Empire or of pagan states. Not because St. Paul has some theory that God directly appointed them or because they always judge in accord with divine justice, but because the rule of law is necessary for human society. And in that sense, any judge, any officer charged with the protection of justice and the service of the common good is acting then according to God's plan. It's a human activity, yes, but it's in the service of a higher and more transcendent good than the goods protected by doctors and accountants and engineers. Now, perhaps there are some doctors, accountants, or engineers here or watching from home. And I don't mean to demean those professions in any way. It's simply to point out that those professions serve a particular good. The lawyer takes an oath to be a servant of a common good, the good of justice. And I think it's very important, especially for lawyers and judges, to see their profession not as a private employment that is serving private goods, only anyway, but to see their profession in the light of God and to see that serving the law and serving justice is not just one profession among all the others, which, if you happen to be a Christian, you can reconcile with the practice of your faith, much in the way that you can be a Christian and a doctor or a Christian and an accountant or a farmer or a carpenter. I'd like to make a stronger claim than this. Being a lawyer isn't just reconcilable with the Christian tradition or a Christian vocation. Rather, Scripture and the Christian tradition bear witness that serving the law, and especially serving as a judge, if we have any judges here, certainly we are praying for them on this occasion of the Red Mass, that this kind of service is quite directly, and you might say intrinsically, a part of God's plan for human communities. By the nature of their profession, lawyers and judges participate in a higher project, a higher order than these other professions, precisely because they are concerned with the rule of law and the administration of justice. Those are higher goods than bodily health or financial gain or material possessions. Okay, that's all fine. The lawyers here might be ready to say, thanks very much, Father, but hold on. What you're describing sounds great, kind of highfalutin. It's not what I do in my daily life. I'm dealing with clients. I'm reviewing documents. I'm writing briefs. And of course, that's true. But I would suggest that everyone involved in the practice of law is in fact in the service of a very high and noble common good. It's the common good of justice. And that is an attribute of God himself. Those who work for justice are working for something that transcends what is merely human. So St. Thomas Aquinas, the great Dominican theologian and philosopher, universal doctor of the church, someone I especially uh, 
and fond of, explains it like this. Human beings are not only ordered to personal, individual, or private goods, but also towards nobler goods, higher goods. That is, the goods that we can pursue are not all on one horizontal plane. They exist in a hierarchy. Some goods, they may be very important, necessary goods, but they remain goods of a lower level. So the good of our biological life, we need food, we need shelter, we need health, and so forth, they're necessary for us to live. But they don't guarantee that we will live well. They don't guarantee that we will be good. Perhaps you see where I'm going. Having those goods doesn't even guarantee that we will live in a way that is authentically human. To be authentically human, we need higher and nobler goods. And these are not private goods or individual goods. They're goods that we share with others, common goods. They're the kind of goods that can be shared by many without being diminished. Their very nature is common. So the kind of life that you live in a happy family is a common good. It's the common good of the family. Friendship is a common good. So is knowledge of the truth and a flourishing neighborhood, a just city. Justice is a common good. Ultimately, though, at the top of all of these goods, of this hierarchy of goods, we find God, who is the universal common good of the whole universe. God is a common good. The good. And laws of various kinds direct human beings towards these goods. They protect them. They make it possible to attain them. So if all of this is true, and I've given just a very, very brief summary of a very rich and complex subject, if this is all true, then it's especially important that lawyers and judges be good. That is, that they be virtuous. That's how to become a good lawyer. Because moral virtues are more than technical skills. They make the person who possesses them to be good. So what virtues does a judge need? What virtues does a lawyer need? Now, probably we could come up with a list of professional qualifications that would be important for any lawyer. And those would certainly be important if you're going to be proficient at the practice of law. But those kinds of things don't necessarily make you good. It seems to me that above all, the judge and the lawyer needs wisdom. And especially the special form of practical wisdom, which is called prudence. That means understanding something of the whole, where we are and where we're trying to go, and thus making right judgments about the particular principles of this circumstance, of this case. Acquired prudence requires and builds on experience. It can be mentored, and that's a very good reason to have good mentors in the practice of the law. Let me give you a summary of the virtue of prudence. This is Aquinas' teaching on prudence. 
which I've taken from a French Dominican whose discussion of this I found especially fruitful, but you'll know why it's important to say that he's a French Dominican, uh, because it's a very typically French example. Suppose I'm going to cook a meal. This action, cooking a meal, a delicious French meal, you might imagine, has its own proper end to prepare edible food, healthy and appetizing, even tasty. It's an art. But I'm free. I could do something else. Why am I cooking? It could be for myself because I'm hungry. It could be to serve my religious community. I've received a work assignment and I'm supposed to cook for the community tonight. It could be to earn a living to support my family as a professional chef. It could be simply because I love to cook. Each of these motives is perfectly justifiable. But notice that each of them presupposes that I have some end, some goal in mind, that is higher than cooking itself. It's the goal by which my activity of cooking will be measured. So, if you are a professional chef and you cook but you don't get paid and so you can't pay your rent, it's not working out very well. Or, if I'm cooking to eat a tasty meal myself, but it turns out that I made something that I don't like, then it didn't turn out so well. But something can also render cooking, which of itself is good, morally bad. So, if I love to cook, but I have an assignment given to me by my superior or perhaps a work project that is due tonight, and there's someone else who could cook who's just as good at it as me, but I choose instead to neglect my other duties in order to cook, then obviously I have placed the wrong order in my actions. I can also cook in order to make people appreciate me. It might be to puff myself up. It could become a source of pride for me. Well, all of these things I recount simply in order to point out that cooking requires us to look at something beyond it in order to judge whether it's being done well. And the same is true with any human practice, and certainly the practice of law. In the line of moral goodness, you can be very proficient at an activity, you can be very proficient at being a lawyer, and put being a lawyer at the service of the wrong end, and your activity will not necessarily be good. This is why prudence is needed, to see what is the act of the good lawyer, the just lawyer, in a particular case. Prudence requires a kind of reflection on the meaning of what I am doing. And that kind of reflection is sometimes difficult for lawyers to come by. In the heat of battle, in the middle of a law practice, one doesn't often have the opportunity to step back and ask, why am I doing what I am doing? What am I really serving with my work? That is why an occasion like this is a very good opportunity for every lawyer to ask for the illumination of the Holy Spirit, to see 
my life, my career, my work in God's light to ask him to help me to order it back to God. God can infuse prudence into us. And St. Thomas Aquinas thinks that God does this all the time, especially in those in whom he gives the gift of sanctifying grace. So if you're in a state of sanctifying grace, that is, if you are living according to the precepts of the church, you've been to confession, you've confessed the sins that you know on your conscience, you desire to please God. If you're in the state of sanctifying grace, then Aquinas would say, you have received a divine gift of infused prudence that you can rely on to direct your life towards God, to direct all of your activities towards him. But Aquinas also thinks that there are obstacles that we sometimes place that prevent that divine prudence from being effective in us. What is the greatest obstacle, do you suppose, that Aquinas identifies? It's kind of surprising. Aquinas points us in a direction we probably wouldn't first think of. Concupiscence, he says. Concupiscence could be the desire for material things in general, above all sense pleasures, but lust, above all, he says, causes us to become blind. We begin to judge our actions according to our lower impulses, and we develop a kind of numbness for what is really important in the higher order of things. This is why living an upright life is actually very important for being a good lawyer, and why there is nothing in our lives that will not bear on growing in professional virtue. It's very important to be a good Christian if you want to be good at any other thing that you're doing, good in the full sense of that word. Aquinas would also say that it's very important for the lawyer to think about and consciously cultivate a love for the common good, justice as a common good that pertains to the community. It's true that we serve our clients in a particular case, but we should always recognize that that is in the context of a legal system which should be just and a legal system that is ultimately subordinated to the highest common good, which is God himself. That's another temptation, I think, that we face in our contemporary world. A temptation that many succumb to, I think. To think that politics, in the end, deals with the highest good of the human being. And therefore that we can solve all of our problems with politics. But of course, that isn't true. In fact, it could even ultimately lead you, if you went too far with a view like that, to a kind of blasphemous position that forgets that this world is radically relative to God and that human beings have an obligation to worship and honor God, which exceeds the jurisdiction of every human authority. That was precisely the issue at the Exodus when Moses appeared before the king, the Pharaoh, 
Pharaoh wanted to govern how the people could worship. In fact, Pharaoh commanded them to work instead of worshiping. And this was the one thing on which Moses would not compromise. That is to say, the political common good is limited not just from below. Often in our constitutional system, we think of the power coming from below, and therefore only what is given from the people is granted to the powers of the state. But in the Catholic tradition, the common good is also limited from above. That is, the local community cannot enact laws that overrule what is higher, and above all, they cannot overrule God himself. So, we've talked enough about the virtues of a lawyer. I could mention a few more, but we don't have time to go into them. Perhaps the most important that I haven't mentioned yet is one of the cardinal virtues, the virtue of courage. Courage originally means to be brave in the face of physical danger, but it also includes the willingness to speak the truth even when it's hard for others to hear. Of course, to speak the truth with charity, to speak it with a real love for the other and for the common good, but nonetheless to say what might even harm my standing when it is needed, when justice calls for it. Let me conclude with just a few very brief practical recommendations about the path towards being a good lawyer, not only to meditate on justice and your service of the common good, but also to recognize that that calls for a certain personal integrity. And that includes being honest. That's part of the oath. Try to be scrupulously honest. That is, not to be dishonest in any way. It sounds perhaps easy enough to do, but it can be quite challenging. Ask God for the grace to be one who always is a straight shooter, who speaks the truth. And then recognize that what you do as a lawyer is not different from what you do as a person. You do it. There is no dispensation from your moral responsibility for the acts that you perform, even in your professional capacity. To be a good lawyer then, in the end, needs the help of the Holy Spirit. That's the purpose of the Red Mass. That you are here already speaks very well of your disposition to receive the graces that the Holy Spirit will generously give you. He loves justice. He loves our community. He loves each of you, and he will not withhold his help from anyone who seeks him with an honest heart. So, 
perhaps we can conclude with a very brief prayer invoking the Holy Spirit for our legal community, for all here present, and for all lawyers and judges. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and enkindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit and they shall be created and you shall renew the face of the earth. Thank you.